Today's show is sponsored by Panoptica. Panoptica simplifies container deployment, monitoring, and security, protecting the entire application stack from build to runtime. Scalable across clusters and multi-cloud environments, Panoptica secures containers, serverless APIs, and Kubernetes with a unified view, reducing operational complexity and promoting collaboration by integrating with commonly used developer, SRE, and SecOps tools. Panoptica ensures compliance with regulatory mandates and CIS benchmarks for best practice conformity. Privacy teams can monitor API traffic and identify sensitive data while identifying open source components vulnerable to attacks that require patching. Proactively addressing security issues with Panoptica allows businesses to focus on mitigating critical risks and protecting their interest. Learn more about Panoptica today at panoptica.app. That's panoptica.app. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody's doing well, getting towards the very, very end of July of 2023. August is right in front of us, a couple, just five months left of the year. Uh, amazing how uh, time flies. Hope everybody's doing well. If you are a regular Sunday Perspective show listener, if you're one of those that uh, always listens on Sundays, uh, this one might be going out slightly late. Uh, where I was staying over the weekend, uh, we lost power, especially lost power on Saturday night because of some storms. So, uh, Getting this one out just slightly later, a couple hours later than normal, so apologies if that uh, disrupts your schedule, but I uh, hope everybody's doing well. What I want to talk about today is sort of an interesting article that I read from our friend uh, Jamin Ball, a uh, guy who runs uh, Cloud of Judgment, our, our new friend who really digs into the numbers for us around the cloud and kind of financials around the cloud. And he had an interesting article in his newsletter from about a week or so ago, and it basically was asking, um, are, are, are software companies bad business? Um, and essentially, it was an article that was raised by some comments out of the VC community, uh, concerned about, uh, you know, and, and this was the tech VC community whose lifeblood is, is based on software. But in essence, it was asking, you know, uh, is, is software bad business in terms of, from a VC perspective, in terms of, um, how much free cash flow it raises? Uh, so meaning, you know, doesn't, people don't just, sign up for the software, but they're actually spending money on the software. And is it, uh, is it a business that you can turn fairly quickly? Um, so they, they had like sort of three concerns. One was do software companies generate enough free cash flow? Uh, number two, um, how quickly do they do that? How quickly do they move from, in essence, uh, uh, you know, giving away not only software, but overspending on sales and marketing in order to acquire customers, uh, in essence, not being profitable, but just sort of burning through VC funds. And third, um, you know, is the cost of uh, options and uh, equity, uh, so in the, in the form of like options and RSUs, is that too expensive? Does that become too much of a cost? Is it sort of a cost that is sort of hidden? And for those of you that don't know, um, you know, typically in a, in a sort of software company, smaller company, um, non-public company, if you will, um, people oftentimes take a lower than market or, you know, somewhat lower salary in exchange for equity in the company um, and equity in the company while it's not necessarily always vested uh, at the point where it does start vesting or maybe even earlier, I'd have to look at the accounting rules. Um, 
you have to charge that as an expense because in essence, the idea of it is it will become, um, you know, part of somebody's salary package at some point in time. So, um, anyways, those three things sort of got brought up and, uh, Jammin, as he always does in excellent fashion, sort of walked through and said, well, those concerns are fair in some cases. Um, but, you know, it can then kind of walk through sort of how software companies are making money and what their, uh, you know, what their balance sheets look like. And sort of, you know, kind of took a basket of software companies and said, this is the average of what things look like. <clears throat> but anyways, the article kind of got me thinking about, uh, you know, the future of software, not so much, you know, exactly how everything will get built, but the future of software as a financial entity, uh, software companies as a financial entity, you know, will they continue to have uh, these sort of great margins um, and be sort of great companies uh, in, in some cases, uh, as we've seen in the past. And so what, what I kind of want to do after the break is dig into, you know, what are some of the future trends that we're seeing, some of the near-term and longer-term trends that we're seeing, and does software still like a real, look like a very appealing uh, business to be in or to invest in? And we'll dig into that after the break. And we're back. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, what I kind of want to do today is is veer off a little bit of an article that was in Clouded Judgment this past uh, couple weeks ago in, in the newsletter and dig into, um, you know, the, sort of the future of software, not so much, uh, you know, w- how it's developed. Should it be Java or Rust or some other thing or blah, blah, but really kind of some some bigger, more economically driven questions around software, how it's created, how it's delivered, all those sort of things. And, um, you know, will we continue to see sort of the margins out of the software business that we have seen over the past multiple decades, if you will? And, you know, a couple of things got me thinking. So obviously, uh, Jammin's article and Clouded Judgment got me thinking about it. Um, if you are a listen, if you are a listener of Stratechery, uh, the Ben Thompson um, newsletter and podcast that goes out weekly, uh, multiple times a week, uh, you know, Ben has talked forever about <clears throat> software being a very good business, especially over the internet, because the internet uh, and software essentially let you deliver these things for free, in essence. So your 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 delivery of the the product is essentially free. It can be scaled uh, linearly, uh, depending on what the software is. Um, and basically, it's like once you build the software, every incremental, uh, you know, iteration or instance of it that you that you sell or somebody uses, in essence, is free, right? So all the cost is up front, and then the uh, incremental delivery, distribution, all that stuff is sort of free. So you know, there's been a uh, a belief in in our industry for a long time that that software is a tremendous business. Um, there is good reason to believe that. In that, uh, a number of the very successful software companies, whether it's Oracle or Microsoft or uh, Salesforce or any number of companies, um, you know, Red Hat, VMware, lots of others, um, have very very good margins on their. Uh, kind of cash cow businesses. Um, hence, you know, software is a very, very good plot, uh, you know, kind of business to be in. And we've seen, you know, more and more value, uh, at least in various parts of the industry, move from, you know, kind of hardware centric things to software centric things. We're starting to see hardware come back and be interesting again. But it got me thinking because some of those models uh, in terms of you know, super successful software, some companies like Microsoft or VMware or Red Hat or Oracle or others tended to make a lot of their fortune uh, on-premises when you were selling essentially packaged software, um, not that was not delivered as cloud services, right? They weren't SaaS. They were delivered as software that then somebody else had to run and operate. 
So the cost uh, embedded in operating them was burdened on the customer, wasn't necessarily burdened on the software. Um, you know, they did very, very well on margins. Now we're seeing more and more software be delivered via the cloud. And that starts to get into some very interesting things, right? So the first thing is, um, if I want to deliver software via the cloud, so in the past, I not only had to build the software, I had to, I had to build some sort of like delivery mechanism for the software, which typically was, you know, in essence, a glorified FTP server or some sort of download server. And then I had to, you know, build up sort of a sales and marketing mechanism to let you know, you know, to build awareness in the marketplace and be able to take orders. But I didn't have to operate the software, right? So if, let's say I built a CRM system, um, you know, I gave you the software to go build the CRM system. You had to buy servers, you had to run it, you had to network it together. All that burden was on you. Now, if I were to get into doing a new software uh, entity today, so for example, I'm delivering some um, CRM-like system or project management system, so like Asana or something. Uh, before you ever run the software, I have to build the system. I have to build a backend system. I have to build a SaaS service. I have to find engineers, uh, SRE teams, uh, start paying Amazon or Azure, or Google a bill, all those sort of things. So while you still can make a bunch of money at being very, very successful, um, there is a portion of like things like SaaS in which the operational costs are burdened upon you. Now, obviously they can adjust pricing such that some of that's included and so forth, but, but there's a different pricing model. The second thing uh, that gets sort of interesting is we start thinking about like the SaaS business. And if you think about, you know, who are the biggest, most gigantic SaaS companies there are, um, there are plenty of names that you know, but they're not necessarily of the order of magnitude of the largest previous software companies that you saw. And what that in essence sort of means is while, uh, so what's, what's the best way to explain this? So if you, if you follow the show for a while, there are plenty of times when we will have startups come on the, com, uh, come on the show. And at times they're really interesting companies. And other times you sort of listen to it and you go, that whole company sounds like one feature, right? Like it sounds like one capability, one feature that would have been uh, a feature or a capability of a broader software platform in the past, right? So the thing about SaaS is SaaS has been very good at figuring out how do I take a distinct problem that somebody has that I could either solve with software or, you know, maybe used to be a piece of software that I now want to deliver as a SaaS service because nobody wants to operate it. But SaaS is fairly highly fragmented, right? Fragmented in the sense of like, yes, there are platforms like Google Cloud um, with like all the all the docs and things that go along with it, Microsoft Office or Microsoft 365 or Salesforce. But there's also 10, 100 million thousand SaaS applications that do one thing. And there'll be, you know, 25 different ways of doing project management and 25 different ways of doing, you know, creative stuff, whether it's a Canva or an Adobe or somebody like that. And so SaaS is highly fragmented. And when things are highly fragmented, you lose out on the ability to, you know, kind of have pricing power over uh, over your customers, hence have greater margins, right? You tend to, when you have lots and lots of options and the option is a, you know, one-off feature, um, you know, it becomes harder and harder to get great margins for what you're doing. So you have a couple of things that are a little different than the old software business that was high margin. You 
you have to operate it. So that cuts into potentially cuts into your margin. Um, and you've got higher amounts of competition because we're not necessarily building platforms. We're building these sort of companies that are one feature or one capability type of thing. The third thing that got me thinking was, you know, we've, we've talked for a long time and I think I'm going to cover it maybe in the next Sunday perspective show as well is, you know, we've gone from the days of, you know, software was this giant multi, multi, multi-million dollar project that also involved consultants that was purchased, you know, entirely by the CIO, right? Or some senior vice president, right? We're seeing, especially with SaaS, more and more things that are bought bottoms up, you know, sort of, oh, this team has a problem. They go out and find a tool and maybe they start off with, uh, you know, free trial, but then eventually they sort of buy into it. But you get more and more of sort of bottom-up sort of selling motions, right? And that's fine because, <clears throat> you know, there's times when top-down doesn't work, even though they spent a lot of money. There's times when bottom-up does work and it grows within a company. Something like Slack's a great example of that. But what gets interesting is as we start to talk about, you know, this sort of AI boom that we're in right now, this AI moment that we're in, whether or not it'll pan out or not, people tend to be fairly bullish on it. Um, but what'll be interesting about it is a couple of things. First is if a lot of the discussion around AI is, does it replace what some human does, some task that some human does, or does it augment what some task or human does? And if you are selling the value proposition of what AI does um, at the low level, that works okay because some team or, or group goes, oh, okay, this is augmenting what we do. But if you're selling that at a high level, you know, you're not going to sell to the CIO that you're sort of augmenting your staff. You're going to sell that you're going to displace some of the staff because the CIO is looking for, CFO is looking for higher level returns, right? Whereas lower level staff people are looking for, you know, how do they create, increase their own productivity, right? It's the normal kind of yin and yang problem that we have within every organization, which is, uh, you know, the workers are trying to create more value that they drive for themselves, um, help, you know, help increase their resume, help increase their ability to make more money. Um, yes, they're also trying to help improve the business, obviously, overall. But management is very much trying to drive profitability, maybe to the behest of, you know, what's in the best interest for workers. And, you know, so there's always a little bit of, of challenge there. And so software, especially as we get into AI, you know, software in the past had always been about productivity and to a certain extent cost savings, but really a lot of it was around driving productivity. Um, the productivity equation starts to change a little bit. Now, people are going to argue, well, AI is not going to displace jobs. It will displace jobs. We're already seeing those arguments uh, out in the marketplace and we'll see what pans out. Um, but that becomes an interesting thing. The next thing where uh, AI becomes sort of interesting in the software business is you know, so much of software is priced usually on one of two things. It's, you know, per seat. Uh, oh, how many people do you have using the software per seat licensing or some sort of usage based pricing, right? So, okay. If you use, you know, 50 gigabytes of storage, um, that's what, that's the threshold. And the next one is maybe 200 gigabytes or, you know, so many hours a week of usage of something, um, or, you know, so many transactions or API calls or whatever it might be. Um, what happens when AI comes into play and AI is not only, uh, you know, trying to explain that it could augment what you do. So maybe be more efficient at what you do. Hence, <clears throat> maybe you don't need as many API calls or you don't need as many transactions or whatever, or it's potentially going to 
reduce the number of people that are needed overall. Hence, the number of seats goes down. So it makes it sort of an interesting thing in which on the surface, AI does this really amazing thing, whatever it might be. But on the flip side, when it comes time to go sell that technology, somebody has to figure out the pricing model. And if you've ever been in the technology game uh, and you think about it in terms of, okay, we have cool technology, but how do we get people to adopt it? And how do we figure out a pricing model that people believe they're paying for value? And you've disrupted the things that people have a sort of a, a, a North Star for seats or usage or something it may become a little more challenging than people think, right? So, you know, right now we all love ChatGPT because uh, it's, you know, it's free, for example, or maybe it's 20 bucks a month or 30 bucks a month. And so you go, okay, that seems reasonable for me as an end user. But, you know, when you get into things where, <clears throat> for example, Microsoft uh, is talking about uh, Office 365 or 365, you know, having an upcharge of like $30 a month for the AI capabilities they're going to build into the co-pilot capabilities they're going to build in. Then it becomes sort of an interesting conversation of like, well, I understand if I have to pay, let's say $50 a month for per user to use the software, right? Like the Office 365 suite. But if I had to pay an additional $30 per month per person, then you start getting into, well, is everybody going to need this co-pilot capability? Is it all the value of it equally distributed to everybody? Um, what is it going to do? You know, you get into some just sort of weird or unusual or, ha- or to be determined pricing capabilities that I think still have to sort of be worked out. And, you know, uh, people will be surprised at how much <laughs> I say that should be surprised, but you'd be surprised at how much what seems like interesting technology and gosh, everybody's going to want this and everybody's going to, it's going to make sense to everybody when it gets to pricing that it just becomes a different conversation. Um, the next thing I wonder about is, <clears throat> you know, we, <laughs> there's a, there's a thing that goes on in our industry where we find a buzzword and everybody loves the buzzword because it sort of, it makes the case in the near term for what we all are, are trying to do, which is like, we're trying to be better at building software or better at deploying software and hence, you know, responding to the business and being, um, you know, adapted to the market and all those sort of things. And so, you know, obviously there's this sort of saying out there that, you know, every company has become a software company, right? Developers are the new kingmakers. And what's interesting about those two is if you think about those in the sense of software and economics, well, if, you know, in the past, uh, having great software in your company Right. So there's people who talk all the time about how Amazon's a great company and interesting, you know, logistics company and supply chain company. But, you know, I was listening to an interview recently and somebody said, well, the thing that makes Amazon the company is that they're an amazing software company. You know, the, the software that they create internally to be able to run their systems is amazing. And being great at software, meaning you're able to hire great developers and you're able to have the wherewithal to create you know, and disrupt markets through technology is, is really amazing. Um, but when everybody is a software company and everybody has access to all these things, it does make me wonder, you know, do we start to get into the old Nicholas Carr statement of like, you know, is IT essentially a commodity? Do we really need IT anymore, right? What value does IT provide? It may start to get into the conversation of like, well, if everybody's a software company, does software become a commodity? Hence, is software as valuable as it used to be, or does it deserve as much of a premium as it used to in the past? No, it might, right? It might just become sort of the cost of doing business. Um, but it does, you know, it does sort of, if 
the goal is to make everybody capable of doing software as opposed to just having IT or just having the internet or whatever it might be, does that bring down over time the margins and the sort of the the overall value? Now, can you create, you know, if the market expands, you can make a lot more money, but can you make a lot more money at the kind of margins people were used to? Again, um, you know, there are grocery stores in every single town. Everybody needs, you know, grocery stores and food and so forth, but grocery stores in general make very low margins because grocery stores have become commodity. You know, does software eventually go that route? Eh, maybe, maybe not, but it does, it does sort of beg the question of like, you know, we've asked, we've created this world in which every company is a software company. Is that really, <laughs> is that really the message we want to get out there to the world, which is, you know, uh, is software any more differentiated versus it's just everybody has it and everybody's a software company and everybody else sort of understands this stuff. Now, the other flip side to that is in terms of everybody's a software company, right? Or every startup is a software company. You know, the thing that you do notice working in a startup uh, or having kind of gone through it is the things that you would typically expect to be able to do that are commodity type of things. So like, oh, we need an accountant. Oh, we need a an auditor. We need, you know, a tax person. Those things don't necessarily scale on the business side of things, right? Like you can't just go like, oh, we'll just get a common marketing service and they'll just do everything for us. Or we'll just get a common you know, sales service and they'll do everything for us. Those are the things that oftentimes differentiate the business. And, you know, um, you know, we haven't seen the ability to, to scale that kind of stuff necessarily happen, right? We see software companies go through CMOs and marketing departments and sales leaders and sales departments all the time because that part of the business is, is really, really hard. Um, so... Anyways, talked about a bunch of things, talked about, uh, you know, the fragmentation of the market instead of having, you know, more and more new platforms that aggregate things, we tend to be uh, disaggregating software. Um, so does that make it easier or harder to to build a highly profitable business? Um, you know, how much will the cost of delivering software as it's changed from things like SaaS and AI uh, start to eat into margins? Have people figured that out? Maybe, but maybe not. You know, as more and more software kind of gets determined, uh, evaluated from the bottom up, um, you know, how much does that make, you know, the ability to sell really big contracts, high margin contracts possible? Or, you know, uh, if everything is, is driven by decisions that are at lower levels, um, you know, does that, does that fragment your ability to sell uh, more software or higher margin software? You know, what role does AI play in this? Um, you know, does everybody need AI? Do people, how are people going to figure out um, how to put a value around AI? That's going to be an interesting evolution in the market if that becomes sort of table stakes for every software application. And then obviously, as we start to get into, um, you know, uh, channels for market, um, if everybody is is doing it, does it commoditize software? So, you know, by no means am I trying to uh, state that you know software is not going to be a good businesses to be in. That software won't be highly valuable. Um, but I think you know when we do see even parts of the market, like the VC community, uh, start to question like what do margins look like? What you know can you build viable businesses? And again, keep in mind that we use the VC community as sort of a proxy for a lot of things. Um, yes. They put money into the market, um, but they're not the only source of money into the market. There are plenty of other sources of money into the market. Um, they have very distinct timelines. They expect things to happen. They expect uh, very distinct sort of returns. 
which you know sometimes happen, don't always happen. <clears throat> but if they are starting to question it, it does make you sort of go, okay, you know, let's figure out why they're questioning that. But let's also look at some of the bigger sort of macro level things that are impacting software, what's changed over the last five or 10 years that might raise concern, but also start to you know raise the conversation of like, okay, these things are likely coming into play. They're likely becoming the new norms. Again, like whether it's SaaS or whether it's AI or, you know, what will be the role of open source going forward, right? Obviously it'll be a development model, but is it a you know, monetization model. We've seen, you know, various things happen there. Um, you know, it's worth kind of having the conversation of will the things that have gotten us here in the past in terms of the software industry, you know, can those things continue? Do they have to change? What are some new ideas people have around them? What are some new business models people have around them? So all those things are floating out there. I think it's an interesting conversation. Would love to get people's feedback on this. Um, anyways, but with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, Maybe, maybe more open-ended questions this week than sort of definitive answers, but sometimes that's the purpose of the Sunday Perspective. So anyways, hope everybody's doing well. Hope uh, hope your month's going well. Hope your summer's going well. Hope your uh, Q2 and into Q3 planning is going well, whatever you're working on. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for sending in your questions every week and uh, giving us ideas for new topics and uh, you know new questions and so forth. And if you have any feedback on this one or any of them, uh, let us know. We are now on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and LinkedIn and all the different places. You can find all the links to it uh, over on thecloudcast.net. Um, if you don't uh, if you don't know them already, uh, we are almost always at the thecloudcastnet uh, handle on all those platforms. So anyways, with that, thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for helping us grow on the show. We're going to wrap it up this week and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos and everything social media.